This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you indoors on this frigid Saturday morning in February, which is, I guess, more appropriate weather that uh, we should be expecting. Um, uh, Today's show... Uh, We're going to break a little bit with the format uh, in the sense that my guest is going to be Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford, as I mentioned last week, and we got quite a few questions for her. So um, instead of her coming on at the bottom of the hour, uh, we're going to get to her at about 1120. I need to really extend the time with her. For those of you who are familiar with Dr. Ratchford, um, she uh, is a private practice ophthalmologist, an MD, an eye surgeon at the Ratchford Eye Center. And she has been a longtime partner on this program, a regular guest. And we could easily fill up a segment every week with Dr. Ratchford uh, with the questions we get about eyes and vision. So we're going to be getting to her a little bit earlier than usual for our guest. Um, Many of you will notice that I stopped counting how many shows it's been after COVID. Uh, and I started that at the beginning of the year because I, I thought it got kind of played out a little bit. I don't know. But uh, I have received uh, emails saying we're keeping track of how many shows it is since the onset of the pandemic. So uh, for those of you keeping track, this uh, is the 120th consecutive show um, and dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. The good news today is that our rate of, vac- of positivity keeps coming down. Uh, It's down to 8.6%, so a little bit down from 9% last uh, week. Now, some of you may know I'm a little bit congested today. My voice has changed. Uh, This week I did have, I guess, what we would call a head cold, uh, basically uh, a little bit of upper respiratory things. But what's interesting is as soon as you start feeling a little bit of a raspy throat or a little bit of congestion, I don't know about most of you, but I go for the COVID test, okay? I go get the home test out. Um, And, in fact, tested myself twice (laughs) this week uh, just to make sure that I was uh, negative. So it's one of those routine things that sticks with you a little bit. You're able to um, do all your activities. But, again, uh, being mindful that you may be infectious, so you're wearing a mask uh, more than you usually would. And I hope everyone is doing the same thing. As I mentioned, we're dealing with a lot of cold weather this week and this weekend. And everyone is is talking about, you know, how to stay warm, stay warm. And I'm going to give you the reasons for staying warm. I mean, one of the things we don't think about very much during the year is hypothermia. But it's something we think about in sports when we're working with athletes who participate in winter sports, especially these long-distance sports or people who do a lot of snowshoeing because hypothermia is really a medical emergency and it's rare when you look at it in the general population but basically 
it's where your body is losing heat faster than it could make heat, right? So it's, it's a deficit in heat. So naturally, your body temperature starts to drop, normal being 98.6 or 37 degrees centigrade, and it drops to about 95 uh, and 35 degrees centigrade. So when you get to that, you really have the effects of hypothermia. And hypothermia really affects the cardiovascular as well as neurologic functions. So you'll see your body starts to shiver in an effort to generate more heat. Um, you'll notice a weak pulse in the patient, shallow breathing. So it's really affecting the respiratory system and those crucial sy symptoms that keep uh, systems that keep us alive. From a neurologic standpoint, uh, patients start to have slurred speech or garbled speech. Uh, they become drowsy, very fatigued. Um, and, and the fatigue thing is very important to note, especially if you're a skier. When you go out west, you know, you're dealing with the effects of not only low temperature, but altitude, right? So most of us are not used to being at high altitude. So you're dealing with multiple factors um, there that can affect your overall uh, ability to function. Uh, I notice that when I ski out there, if I'm invited to a meeting or something of that nature and I get to ski for a day, I'm fatigued a lot sooner uh, when you're at high altitude. So uh, important to note for hypothermia. The thing we deal with a lot more is frostbite. And frostbite basically being freezing of the skin and the underlying tissues. So early on with frostbite, you'll notice cold skin, kind of a prickly feeling in your skin and numbness. And that's the point where it's giving you a warning that you've got to start rewarming. And that's the crucial part. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, that's the crucial part of avoiding frostbite. So with that... <coughs> You want to be mindful of trying to get warm. Don't start rubbing your hands because that leads to further breakdown of your skin. And if you get blisters from the cold, don't break those blisters because that will lead to more infection and uh, basically ischemia. And we always hear about these stories where people actually lose digits of their fingers and toes. So stay warm as much as you can. If you don't have enough warmth in your house, get to a shelter. Uh, a couple of notes here. Antibody assay. The, the COVID antibody assay. So people are trying to get an assay to see how much immunity they have against COVID, either from the vaccination or from having it previously. And basically, we don't know that. We don't know what the safe level is of antibody in your bloodstream that'll keep you from getting COVID. And it's certainly not enough of a test, a reliable enough test to make a decision on whether or not you want to get the booster. So with that, um, I, I would not recommend getting the uh, various tests for the assay for antibody. Uh, one thing that was mentioned last week, I spent a lot of time talking about polio, and I was sent an email uh, to remind people, you know, we went through this whole thing with famous people and getting the COVID vaccine, right? 
Uh, we had athletes saying, uh, we're not getting it, and I'd rather not play. And, and we heard from Aaron Rodgers and people like that. But it was pointed out to me how what a big difference it is from the 1950s when Elvis Presley um, saw the need to go out and get the polio vaccine for himself in order to encourage others to get it. So it's really a big shift in in what we see in some of the people who have acquired some fame today. So thank you for pointing that out and uh, really uh, remembering that. Uh, this day in medicine, February 4th, 1905, Dr. Carl Muschenheim. Dr. Muschenheim was uh, born in 1905, and he was a physician who discovered isoniazid, or as we call it, INH. Now, INH is an antibiotic that is used to treat tuberculosis. And it was first produced in 1952. The thing that's important to know is it's still used today. It is an effective drug against tuberculosis, often used along with another drug called rifampin. Uh, so many are saying, well, how much tuberculosis do we see? Believe it or not, we see quite a bit of it. In 2021, in the United States, there were 8,000 new cases. Um, there are about 13 million people in the United States today dealing with chronic tuberculosis. Um, in 2021, 1.4 million people died of who were HIV negative with tuberculosis worldwide. So we still see a lot of tuberculosis uh, in 2021. 10.6 million people in the world. Um, I have seen it many times in Haiti. And these are the drugs we use. So it's important to note that this is a problem we're still de dealing with. And Dr. Muschenheim was so important in helping us um, deal with that, with the discovery of isoniazid. With that, we're going to uh, take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. And we're going to be chatting about eye diseases. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. In my we're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's great to have uh, with me today Dr. Mary Jean Ratchford from the Ratchford Eye Center. Um, she is a medical doctor. She's an eye surgeon. And full disclosure, since uh, meeting her through this program over the course of the past years, um, she has become my eye doctor. And actually, <laughs> the eye doctor for not only me, but my entire family and extended family um, at her offices at 1166 Farmington Avenue in Berlin, um, which are, it's, a, it's a wonderful setup there. And it's great to have her as a, a partner on, on this program. Mary Gina, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. And that's, those are very kind words. I, I really appreciate them. Well, uh, we all appreciate your service. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, let's get right to it. Uh, you know, originally sure. we said we were, you were going to come on at 1130, but I've had questions. Um, and, okay. And, uh, you know, I put it out there last week that you were going to be on, and I think that's why I got so many questions. So. <laughs> Um, let's start with what we usually do. And I know I ask you this every time, but uh, I really need to drive it home. Can you just tell us the differences between an ophthalmologist, optometrist, and an optician? 
Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a very important, uh, you know, distinguishing. So um, ophthalmologists are medical doctors. So we go to, uh, you know, four years of undergraduate school. We go to medical school. And as you go through medical school, you, you know, decide on the specialty. So ophthalmology is one of those specialties. And so after medical school, we do anywhere from three to five years of both medical and surgical training. Um, and even though the eye is one organ, even within the organ, there are certain surgical specialties that, you know, an ophthalmologist might focus on. Uh, there are folks who are comprehensive ophthalmologists that, you know, treat uh, the majority of eye diseases, do cataract surgery, you know, some glaucoma procedures. More tertiary glaucoma can go to glaucoma specialists and then uh, the retina specialists. There are oculoplastic surgeons and people who do orbital work. So the MD, you know, um, ophthalmologist really is under the scope of those medical and surgical uh, treatments. Now, comprehensive ophthalmologists can do screening for just people who need a regular eye exam, you know, are, are over 65, maybe a diabetic. Um, you know, that's the type of patient that most ophthalmologists treat. Now, optometrists also go, you know, through extensive schooling. They do have undergraduate degrees in college. But their post-graduate um, training are more for identification of eye disease and, again, mostly treatment of, you know, people who require glasses and contact lenses. Um, you know, optometrists have, uh, you know, varied experiences in treating, you know, some common medical conditions for the eye, but really do not um, enter the laser or surgical, you know, realm of, of uh, eye treatment. Opticians who also have, you know, uh, a certification and go to school. They're the ones who are in our optical shops. They have training to measure you for glasses, fit you with glasses, and also do some contact lens fitting. So even though there's a lot of overlap between those three specialties, that's, you know, kind of the primary division. So when looking at this, and then all ophthalmologists, I think pretty much all the ones I know do surgery. Uh, is yes. It a safe assumption of some type of that surgery. That is true. Okay. Correct. Okay. Um, let's move on. Here's another question, and, and again, basic question we always go over. The differences between nearsightedness and farsightedness. They're, they're always, yeah, that's... you know, when we think of myopia, hyper, uh, hypermetropia, and, and, and hyperopia. So, but can you just go over that for everybody once again? Sure. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I'd like to add a third category, which is called presbyopia. Okay. So, okay. Well, so, so yeah, we got I've new not heard of it, so go ahead. Today. It's got to be <laughs> <Okay>. news. <laughs> yeah. So myopia generally, you know, when we think about an optical correction, it really depends on where the light lands in your eye when it gets focused by the lens in the cornea. So people who are myopic, their eyes are longer and their focal point is close. So without glasses, they can see close, but they can't see far away because the lights don't reach that retina. Um, so people who are myopic usually wear a minus power on their glasses. People who are hyperopic, uh, generally it's the, the opposite, where you know they, they may need some help seeing far away, but they really can't see up close. So what I'm referring to is the like uh, 40 and under crowd. When you get over 40, the lens begins to, where it can focus, but it begins to lose its flexibility. And in those cases, which, again, happens to all of us, whether you're hyperopic, 
myopic or really don't need glasses for distance, that affects your ability to accommodate or to then focus up close. And so that's what we call presbyopia. So no matter if you're, you know, farsighted, nearsighted, or don't need anything, most of us eventually will need reading glasses, and that's what's called presbyopia. And in those folks, we end, end up introducing a bifocal with the myopic correction and the, you know, and the reading on the bottom or the far correction and the reading um, on the top. So, again, no matter whether you're hyperopic or myopic, the presbyopia is going to hit all of us, you know, as we get over, over 40 into, into 50s. So I actually misunderstood you. I thought you said Chris with like a C, and I'm saying, boy, that's a new one on me. So, oh, no, presbyopia. Pre- okay, yeah, with a so. P, presbyopia, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, just to complete the other word is astigmatism. So the astigmatism is the shape of your cornea, which is longer in one direction than another. So when the light bends on the cornea, it's not bent equally in all directions, and that's what the astigmatism is. So you can have glasses with up to you know one of those corrections or all four so um, or all three actually you're, you're not going to have a hyperopic and a myopic correction in your glasses but you know there may be up to three different values when you look at your glasses prescription uh, to get everything focused in each you know focal point that we need to see okay let's get to some of the questions that i found most interesting for example okay is sure it a, is it a myth about sitting too close to the tv affecting your vision Yes. <laughs> yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, well, let me let me let me let me explain that. So, I think what we've seen as a trend um, is how much time we spend on the screen, particularly in our you know younger population, you know preschool, you know young 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 age kids that are um, you know under the age of seven or eight. And what happens is your eye adapts. So the more that you look up close, the more your visual pathways to develop. And in fact, we now are worried about a worldwide pandemic of myopia where kids are developing, you know, their eyes are getting longer, they're getting more nearsighted because that's what they're doing every day. So, and there can actually be structural changes of the eye with all that up close work. So, you know, it's a conundrum because we're all on their screens, you know, during the pandemic, every school kid was on a screen and probably did some games afterward. Um, but what we've started to encourage is, you know, get outside, go look at the horizon. There is something about adjusting your focus to far. So I don't think it's specifically about your, your distance to the television, but how much time that you spend doing that up close task that especially in younger kids can affect the development of your eye and sometimes some significant myopia um, as time goes on. Okay, a myth shattered. Uh, I always thought when I was a kid they didn't want me too close to it because they were afraid I was going to get radiation from the TV, from the old yeah. TV. So, <laughs> yeah. so anyhow, uh, right, exactly. that myth. But uh, right, right, certainly right. the screen time has affected um, so many people. So um, Right, right, right. And, point. yeah, that's where yeah, we really want people to get outside, move around, you know, look outside, and, and uh, you know, take enough breaks to be able to give your eyes a rest. Well, sticking with that topic, when should a child begin seeing an ophthalmologist for a routine evaluation? Right. So, um, you know, kids get screened at birth. You know, we screen them for you know, infections right before they are discharged as a, as a you know, a newborn baby. Um, we look for, 
you know, crossed eye. That's, you know, something most of the pediatric doctors will do. Um, and in that case, they really need to be sent to a pediatric ophthalmologist if something like crossed eyes become or if, you know, they look, if there's some kind of visual um, pathway or visual you know, symptom that develops. And even if a child can't read, there are some ways that we can reflect the light on their eye to determine whether or not they need a pair of glasses. So a lot of those, you know, early, early eye diseases that really need treatment to help, you know, promote normal visual pathways are generally picked up by the pediatrician and the pediatric ophthalmologist. But in, you know, sort of generally speaking, um, you know, a lot of the optometrists as well as ophthalmologists can do screening like at preschool um, before they enter, you know, kindergarten to make sure that, you know, these children can see up up close and far away. Um, And then, you know, generally every two to three years after that, you know, another big age group is when uh, teenagers, even if they haven't had trouble, start to drive, want to make sure they can, you know, see the street signs okay. Um, And then recommended, you know, after the age of 65, yearly visits regardless of health. Now, there are exceptions to all those rules, especially if someone is, you know, developed something. But I think the screening, you know, can be done in an optometry or an ophthalmology office, providing there are no other red flags. Thank you. That is uh, so important, I think, uh, for all of us. We're going to get back. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back because we really want to talk about dry eyes, um, some of the things that cause dry eyes. And I still have more questions for you, Mary Gina. So um, okay. we will get to them. Um, let's take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. At your gate. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Oleski. We're spending this morning with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford of the Ratchford Eye Center. Um, For those of you uh, who have been interested in uh, reaching out to me, the telephone number for Dr. Ratchford, if you wish to make an appointment, is 860-829-8939. And uh, she, uh, her office staff will be happy to uh, arrange a visit for you. Uh, so, uh, Mary Gina, one of the topics I really wanted to get, oh, one thing, if you need to get to somebody asked me to give it again, uh, info at Alessi MD if you have questions for us, either live on the air, or if, it, if we don't get to it on the air, I will get them over to Dr. Ratchford. Again, info at AlessiMD.com. Mary Gina, one of the topics I really wanted to discuss today, and let's get right to it is dry eyes can you talk about it a little bit i mean what is it what causes it what do we do about it Uh, can you give us an overview of dry eyes sure sure you know um you know i do have a fairly busy practice and and i can say probably 80 percent of the people that i see whether they're coming in for that you know comprehensive exam or coming in for an evaluation for diabetes, glaucoma, will have some degree of dry eye. Now, now, when we look at the tears, the tears are very interesting. You think they're just this liquid on the eye, but they do have three components to them. It's generated by the lacrimal gland. Uh, there's a lipid component that comes from meibomian glands. And then there's a mucousy component with uh, that come from goblet cells, you know, a, a level from each one of those glands that contribute to a balanced tear film. Now, time, environment, age, 
medications, skin conditions can affect any one of those, you know, those components and can lead to, you know, what we call a dry eye. And we actually call it like a, a tear dysfunction syndrome, you know, is sort of more of a global, you know, term because dry eye may not be just, you know, the lack of the aqueous part. However, um, so when I met with somebody who comes in with either blurred vision, a gritty sensation, my eyes are tired, my eyes are red, by the end of the day, I can't do anything but just close my eyes, that's my clue to let, let's look at what your my like what this tear looks like. And the way that we can evaluate is we, we generally put that kind of yellow drop in your eye that, you know, it stings a little bit because it has an anesthetic, but that dye will kind of give me some information about the volume of the tear and the, you know, kind of the quality of the tear. So if I see someone who's got low volume where it looks like there's what's called staining on the cornea where that dye is picked up by the surface of the cornea, then most often we're dealing with aqueous, you know, where the, there's the, the lacrimal gland is just not producing enough tears. And for those we look at, you know, well, what are you doing all day? What does your environment look like? You know, we most often, you know, we definitely hear these symptoms more in the winter because we're all, you know, in this dry environment. The heat is on, your heat is on in the car, and that all can contribute to evaporation of that tear. Um, the other component of that, you know, sort of evaporation is, well, how much is that lipid layer there? Because that lipid layer can prevent some evaporation. So if I don't necessarily see staining, but I see what's called a tear breakup time that's quicker. So I put the drop and I see, well, what happens if this patient doesn't blink over, you know, a few seconds if the tear, all of them becomes unstable and breaks apart. And then I see those dry patches. Then generally speaking, we're, we're dealing with that lipid layer that isn't so healthy. If I've got someone who's got a lot of that mucusy stuff and related to allergies, and sometimes all three are present, then it may direct our treatment in a little bit of a different way. So, um, you know, we really have to kind of listen to our patient's symptoms, you know, what the quality of their symptoms are, how they change over the course of a day, then that may help direct our treatment. So, you know, typically we do uh, prescribe, you know, over-the-counter teardrops, of which there are many. Um, the main difference, generally speaking, is in the preservative-free versus a non-preservative-free vial. Um, people who are super sensitive, you know, to the environment or have other, you know, conditions of their eye like glaucoma or, you know, have maybe um, an autoimmune condition, we may, you know, steer them to the preservative-free kind of section. Uh, but the preservative-free, but the ones that with preservatives, they're come in bigger bottles, they're easy to carry around with you. And we do recommend, you know, when you brush your teeth in the morning, you know, put your moisturizer on, you know, go ahead and put that eye drop in because it's going to provide you with a better protection over the course of the day as you're bombarded with all those things that you need to do. Um, screen time is a particular, you know, risk factor because when we look at something up close, our blink rate goes down. And each time we blink, it does squeegee out the old tear and generate a new one. So if we're you know, not blinking as frequently and we're, you know, having more evaporation because of the environment than by the end of the day. And even if you're, you know, not on the screen for eight to 10 hours, which some of my patients are, you know, by the end of the day, you might find that your symptoms are a little bit worse. 
that's so interesting because I, I think right away we go to the idea that something you're not producing enough tears um, rather than the quality of the tears. So I think that's important information. Also, let's yeah. face it, yeah. this is a pain. I mean, it's like having sandpaper rubbing over your eyes. Oh, yeah, it's so uncomfortable, right? And, um, you know, the other sort of, you know, sort of kind of a pain in the next thing can, to do but that can really help is, you know, getting that oil released from those meibomian glands. And, and that requires a hot compress on your closed lids with some firm pressure, you know, for 10 minutes. So I know 10 minutes sounds like, you know, an eternity when you're in your busy life. But again, in the shower, they do sell these over-the-counter, you know, packs that you can put in the microwave that you can also put on your eyelids that kind of release that oil. And you might find that just, you know, those kind of home remedies can really help soothe some of those symptoms. Now, if you've tried the hot compresses and you've tried over-the-counter drops, you know, from up to one to four times a day, and we're truly dealing with a medical, you know, aqueous deficiency, then there are, you know, prescription medications that we prescribe pretty commonly. Ones that you might have heard of are Restasis, which is now available as a generic as cyclosporin. Um, there is our two other ones, Zydra, Lefitograst, and Sequa. Uh, now, they work a little bit differently than just supplementing what your tears don't make. They actually work on the inflammatory pathways in the tears. So when you get to the point where your eyes are are really tired and you have almost pain, we do think of inflammation as sort of part of the symptomatology that we need to treat. So those prescription medications can reduce the inflammatory mediators that are found in the tears. They can then increase your own natural tear production. And that's another route for, you know, some symptomatic relief. Now, those, you know, can be expensive. The insurances are variable in how much they cover. Um, they are in the preservative-free vial, so it's one less irritant that's going in the eye. And, you know, these have very little systemic side effects. Most of the side effects people experiencing are burning and irritation, but you've already got a burning your eye anyway. So, you know, hopefully if we can get the tears up, um, you know, those symptoms will uh, subside. Now, there, you know, as we kind of learn about dry eye and in thinking about that inflammatory factor, there are two tests we can do in the office to test your tears for those inflammatory markers. We just almost take like a, a little um, swab and we put it into this uh, chamber and it comes up positive or negative, kind of like our COVID tests do. Um, and if you have, you know, high levels of these inflammatory mediators, then we may even put you on a topical steroid short term to really settle down the symptoms as we wait for these other kind of medications to kick in. Uh, Mary Jean, I guess, I guess one question I have is we see these other things on the market is almost preventive. Okay. Uh, like people who use Visine or whatever, is there any value even if, so you don't have symptoms of dry eye, is there any value in using eye drops uh, as a preventive measure against getting dry eye? You know, I think it's all about protection. You know, it's like wearing sunscreen, you know, before you get the sunburn. Or, you know, it's um, if we can provide those mucous membranes, especially the eyes that are bombarded with another layer of protection, um, you know, I do think that it's worthwhile, particularly in, in certain times of the year or when you know you're going to be, 
you know, working on a project for, you know, a long period of time, if you're going to be going on a long car ride, like particularly, you know, certain tasks that you know are going to kind of stress out that ocular surface. Is surgery an option? Not for dry eye. I mean, well, um, the one thing we can do, which I, I guess is sort of considered an intervention, are something called punctal plugs. Now, plugs are these little silicone stoppers. And the way I describe it to my patients, if you're trying to fill your bathtub up with water, you put that little rubber stopper at the bottom and you, you know, turn on the faucet and then the, the bathtub fills up. In your eyelid, by your nose, there's something called a puncta. It's a small opening through which the tears exit and then go down through the tear duct system, ultimately exiting out through your sinuses and through your nose and your throat. But if we put a little stopper in your at the top of that, at your lid, the tear volume can go up because they're not draining as quickly. Um, so we use these a lot. There are various types. Some are collagen, some are silicone. We can actually do a permanent closure for severe dry eye where we're starting to see corneal breakdown where that surface begins to just become so unhealthy that it begins to break down. Um, so that would be one, one intervention. And again, in extreme cases where I've got someone who's got such severe disease that they've got corneal breakdown infections, then we actually can do something called a tarsorophy where we put a suture in the lid so the eyelid doesn't open up as much. That's for paralytic eyes, you know, people who have a chronic Bell's palsy or people who have very severe disease in the autoimmune realm. So that's not really anything that I think our general listener would necessarily consider as a treatment for their dry eye. Okay. Um I think when you mentioned punctal plug, I consider that surgery. So uh, right, right, it is, it is an intervention. You know, it is something that's foreign that you've got to put in the, you know, put in your, in your body. So yeah, I guess that would be considered some kind of an intervention as opposed to just an eye drop. Um, this past week, the CDC uh, warned against uh, certain types of eye drops, um, the certain Ezra Care artificial tears. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what's going on with that and how it affects people? Yeah, so, um, so you know, Ezra Care um, is a drop that was originally manufactured in an India-based uh, pharmaceutical healthcare, and then, you know, comes over and then gets distributed um, as a generic eye drop, and I believe through some of the um, stores in Walmart. I think that concern I had about this particular eye drop, and, and I have not seen it in my office. I haven't seen anybody with it. I've kind of looked in the stores to see if I've seen it. I mean, there are a lot of generic brands. I haven't seen this particular one, so it may be just certain distributors where it was available. But it was a preservative-free drop. Now, most preservative-free drops come in a little individual dosed vial, and they're purposeful because if you don't have preservatives in it, you're more likely to get contamination. Um, these drops came in a multi-dose preservative-free bottle. Now, there are those kinds of bottles out there, and it's kind of a funky way that the drop gets through this chamber and then gets delivered one at a time, and it can keep you with a bottle as opposed to a vial, but preservative-free. But I think there was a broader problem with contamination at the production plant where Pseudomonas, which is a very aggressive bacteria, 
somehow contaminated that um you know, they're still, I think they're still doing the research to see exactly where the contaminant came in um, because there are open bottles that tested positive for the pseudomonas, but they're still looking at the unopened bottles to confirm that, you know, where did this come from? Uh, but in any event, um, people with this particular drop also dose their eye with these high levels of a very aggressive um, bacteria, and it actually created a corneal ulcer, which is a corneal infection. And because it was so aggressive, you know, these are really difficult kinds of infections to treat. And the, you know, additional problem is that the normal antibiotics that we use to treat this particular strain were ineffective. And so the infections were progressive um, and then some patients, unfortunately, had it stream into their bloodstream. And then if they had an immunocompromised, were even uh, could not fight this infection, and it, it ended up with one person dying. So I think this is a, a obviously a serious a problem. I, I don't think that the general um, eye drops in your pharmacy and drugstore are going to uh, lead to this particular infection. I think it's very specific to this particular eye drop. Virginia. No, there have been. Go yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. You were going to say more about it? Yeah, no, they're, they're, um So in Connecticut, you know, the CDC is, is aware. Um, we've, there, there have been you know, reported cases in Connecticut. I don't have the details of that. Um, um, but, you know, we are required to report these infections. And um, so I, I do think that the collective um, eye community and infectious community is aware of this. So um, I, I do think the risk to our patients at this point is pretty low. But I just want to warn, you know, patients, if you have a red eye, you know, and you think it might go away, but if you develop, you know, vision loss, um, pain, and it's very red, then, uh, you know, you shouldn't delay, you know, going to get your eye checked to make sure that whatever it is is dealt with quickly. Mary Jean, in our closing minutes, I want to get to a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I understand sure. you're going to be making a trip to Honduras um, yes. as part as Vision Health International. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, the trip you're planning? Sure. So I'm, I'm partnering with um, this wonderful, wonderful um, outfit called Vision Health International. And they started you know, in the 80s, but really trying to provide eye care to you know, underserved countries um, all over the world. I happen to be going to um, this clinic um, in, and I've got to name it, La Entrada, Honduras. Um, so I'm going on the 17th. I'm going with a team of about 25. Um, our goal for this clinic is to do, you know, vision screening with some of our partners, you know, in Honduras. But uh, we're taking a cataract surgeon who who is me, and we're taking a pediatric surgeon uh, with our you know staffing uh, folks, and we're going to go do um, you know pediatric surgery to either remove cataracts or to correct strabismus or crossed eyes, and then I will be doing you know anywhere from 50 to 60 cataract operations depending on you know our equipment and the pace. So um, I'm really excited to go. We're uh, you know, this clinic in Honduras has been there for about 10 years, and so they revamped the ORs. We've got some more modern equipment, so I think we're really able to do some good work while we're there. Um, and just to plug, this this particular outfit also does um, pop-up clinics 
in the U.S., and we have one in Hartford uh, coming up on April, in, at the end of April, and we do partner with, um, you know, I'm not sure where this one will be, but there was um, hands on Hartford last time where we, we bring our equipment, we bring glasses, we have vendors who donate sunglasses and glasses, and uh, we have volunteer doctors and technicians who will do screening for glaucoma, cataracts, eye disease, um, and, you know, young kids who might need glasses. So it's a really great operation that not only we do work on the international level, but we do keep it home as well. Mary Jean, if, if people wish to donate to Vision Health International, how do they go about that? Yeah, so um, I would encourage them to go to the website, which is visionhealth.org slash donate. Um, and there's a lot of information um, on that website about where we do, but in particular, the link for donations. Mary Gina, thank you. Uh, thank, thank you, you so for much. your time today. Uh, I have to get you back on soon because I still have questions here. Um, oh, but, I'm, I'm, anytime. I'm here. All right. Well, listen, thank you. Thank you for everything you do, and thank right. you for supporting our program. Okay. Stay warm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Um, with that, we're going to close the show. I want to thank, obviously, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford for her extended interview today. Next week, we're going to be talking uh, about cardiovascular and heart health. This is Heart Health Month. So if you have questions regarding heart disease, get them over to me at info at alessimd.com. If we get a lot of questions, we'll just extend the interview like we did today. Many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board today. Um, and Jeff Chandler is always in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, if you uh, missed any part of today's program, uh, you can get the podcast at odyssey.com. Uh, coming up next is going to be Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.